get everything to work in here. This morning, we are going to begin a little two-part sermon mini-series that is entitled, believe it or not, no, that's not part of the title. The title is, excuse me, the title is, Thank You So Much for Calling Us a Cult. Thank you so much for calling us a cult and proving Christ right. And I want to encourage you, if there's any possible way you can be here tonight, please make sure you're here for the second part of this, if you possibly can. You know, there are a lot of beautiful names in Scripture that Jesus is called. A lot of beautiful names. I have a poster in my office with a lot of those names on it, and, and it's wonderful. But there are some other names and terms which we often tend to overlook. Names and accusatory terms which were used and or applied to our Lord and Savior by those who refused to accept His authority, His teachings, and his lordship, and they refused to accept those things due to their own pride and jealousy, their own personal preferences, prejudices, and misunderstandings. There are names in Scripture by which Jesus is referred to. There are terms in Scripture that are applied to him that if I had started this sermon by asking you who it was in the Bible that was referred to as such, you probably would not have thought of Jesus Christ first. And yet Jesus was called everything from a sinner to a deceiver to an evildoer to being insane Yes, that word is applied to Christ and out of his mind. For example, and I will warn those of you that take notes, you better be ready this morning because we got a lot of scripture references to list. But it's important because I need this list made. For example, names and things that are applied to Jesus' terms. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 3, the scribes believed that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. The high priest in Matthew 26:65, as well as the Jews in John 10 and verse 33, actually accused him openly of it. They didn't just think it, they accused him openly of blasphemy. Now, although the specific name or term blasphemer itself is never specifically used directly in reference to Jesus, to even accuse him of blasphemy, hence inferring he is a blasphemer, was utterly and completely ridiculous. Especially when you understand the meaning of the Greek word from which blasphemer comes, or blasphemy. That Greek word means to rail, revile, 
or speak contemptuously or reproachfully of God or sacred things. Did you catch that? Let me read that again. The Greek term blasphemy means to rail, revile, or speak contemptuously of God or sacred things. Jesus? When did Jesus ever speak evilly or spitefully or reproachfully about God? He never did. Please. Actually, that very term that the Jews used on Jesus is something the scriptures say they themselves are actually guilty of. And this is, this is one of the amazing things you're going to see as we go through this word study. Quite often, the very people who would accuse God or God's people of being something are far more of it themselves. It's amazing. Let me give you a scripture reference. The Jews who called him that were the ones that were actually guilty of the term. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 39, it says, And those who passed by blasphemed him. The accusers were the ones that were guilty. Let me move on. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 34, chapter 12 and verse 24, and Mark 3, 22. The Pharisees and the scribes accused Jesus, catch this, of casting out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Get this. They were accusing the Son of God of working by the power, on the authority of, and in cahoots with the devil himself. That's exactly what they were accusing him of. And you know what? That's exactly, actually, what they themselves were doing was working in cahoots with the devil when they accused God in the flesh of doing it because they, they were doing Satan's work, not him, but they were accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. The irony here is overwhelming to me. They were doing exactly what they were falsely and maliciously accusing him of doing. And in fact, Jesus told them at one point that we have recorded that they were the very ones who were working for Satan and not him. Turn with me to this scripture in your Bibles, please. It is John 8, verses 39 through 47. I, I want you to look at this. As Jesus sought to preach and teach the truth, he finally came out and told them, those who would accuse him of such things, that it was actually they that were working for Satan. John 8, 39 through 47 reads as follows. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. And they said to him, well, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. God's our father. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he who sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil. Right there. He, he lets them know plain and simple. 
And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he's a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell you the truth, why don't you believe me? He who is of God hears God's words, therefore you do not hear because you're not of God. Let us move on to our next term. In Matthew chapter 27 in verse 63, the chief priests and Pharisees, keep in mind these were some of the most deeply religious people of Jesus' day. These weren't just people on the street that didn't care about religion. These were some of the most knowledgeable religious people of Jesus' day. And in that passage, Matthew 27, 63, they called Christ a deceiver. Can you imagine? They called Christ a deceiver, saying to Pilate, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Now I want you to understand the meaning of the word deceiver there. According to Vine's Dictionary, Greek English, it says, this word denotes an imposter of the vagabond type, and so any kind of deceiver or corrupter. That's what they were calling Jesus. Strong's adds that the word also means one who misleads or leads into error. They were accusing Jesus of misleading the people and leading them into error? Really? Yes. And, and the irony, the incredible irony of it is that it was the false teachers of Jesus' day, just like in our day, who reject the truth that he kept bringing. It was these very false teachers, then as now, who were deceiving and dividing and denominating people in their greed. Acts 20 and verse 30, 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. Jesus wasn't deceiving anybody. He was actually teaching them the truth to set them free. John 8, 31 and 2. And yet the ones who were deceiving called him the deceiver. Amazing. Moving on. In Mark 3.21, not only has, has he been accused of blasphemy, working with Satan, being a deceiver, but now in Mark 3.21, Jesus' own family. I know a lot of you in this room have faced persecution from your own family for standing up for the truth, just like Jesus did. His own family, his own mother and brothers said, he's out of his mind. In John 10 and verse 20, many of his own people, the Jews, said he has a demon and is mad. And that doesn't mean angry, mad. That means insane. The Greek word means to be out of one's mind, beside oneself, insane. They were calling Jesus nuts. Can you imagine? Think about this. Here's Jesus. Here's God in the flesh. God, who in the beginning created the entire universe in six days, six 24-hour days. He created the entire universe 
And Proverbs tells us in the beginning of, of that book, several chapters, that godly wisdom was what he used. Everything you see in the universe and how it fits together from the smallest, smallest part of a cell up to the biggest planet. Everything there. God put it all together with his wisdom, his infinite wisdom. And now they are calling God in the flesh who used infinite wisdom, who was there in the beginning, who helped create all things... Insane. That's laughable. It really is. They called him insane. And then, in the absolute epitome of blasphemy and hypocrisy and insanity on their part, the religious elite of Jesus' day, catch this, they called him, him who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, him who was entirely without sin, Hebrews 4.15, you know what they called him? A sinner. John 9 in verse 24, they call him <laughs> a sinner. You talk about the kettle calling a pot black. They called Jesus a sinner and in that same chapter, John 9 in verse 16, they say he is not from God. You can't get any more blasphemous than that. He's not from God? Really? And then in John 18 in verse 30, this same pure perfect, innocent Son of the living God. This, this Son of the living God who never once in His entire earthly life, and not only in His entire earthly life, but in His entire eternal existence, never once sinned or did anything evil. He is called an evil doer. John 18 in verse 30. And he is called an evildoer by some of the most prideful, truly sinful, self-centered, and hopelessly self-blinded religious people of his day. He was called that by the very ones who were themselves guilty of all kinds of evil doing and unrighteousness. Matthew chapters 21, 22, 23, 26, 27, 28. Read them all. The very ones who were doing evil were accusing the perfectly pure and innocent Son of God of being the evil one. Isn't that incredible? But it, that's not all. It doesn't stop there. In addition, in Matthew 9.24, says they ridiculed him. I'm just going down through the list. In Matthew 12.14 and Luke 19.47, talks about how they plotted against him, that they might kill him. And finally, in Matthew 13.57 and 15.12, they were offended at him. Some of you missed some of these. You're taking notes. See me later. 
In Matthew 21 and verse 15, when Jesus was doing wonderful things, they were indignant at him. Now where I'm going with this is pretty obvious, I hope. That we're going to see these same things apply to us in a little bit. In Matthew 27, 12, Mark 15, verse 3, and Luke 23, 2 and 10, they accused him. Did they have anything to accuse Jesus of legitimately? Did they? Not a thing. And yet, we have four passages there where they did exactly that. They accused him. If we moved on. In Mark 3 and verse 30, they said he had an unclean spirit. You want to talk about irony? Here's the son of the living God, and they're accusing him of being the one with the unclean spirit. Mark 7 and verse 2. The irony of all of these, I told you guys a while ago that when I was putting this together, I had to giggle at times. It's just, it's incredible. It's, it, you want to talk about insane? In Mark 7 and 2, they found fault with him who was faultless. And in Luke 6, 11, they were filled with rage at him. In Luke 16, 14, they derided him. In John 6.41 and 7.12, they complained about him. Anybody ever complain about you because you stand up for the word of God? They did him. And finally, in Matthew 27, 29 through 31 and verse 41, they mocked him. In Matthew 9.24, Mark 5.40 and Luke 8.53 in the King James and the American Standard Version, it says, they laughed him to scorn. They didn't just laugh at him. They laughed him to scorn. The idea here is that they just tried to make him look stupid. They, they, they laughed him to the point of how ridiculous can somebody be? In John 7 verse 20, they said of the son of the living God, he had a demon. John 8 48, they took it up a notch, said he was a Samaritan. And had a demon. In John 8.52, they said now they knew he had a demon. Did they know he had a demon? No, he didn't have a demon. They didn't know anything. Finally, in Luke 11.53 and 4, they assailed him vehemently. Cross have you ever been cross-examined? you ever talked to somebody about the truth and just had them just tear into you? That's they did to Jesus. And they lay in wait, seeking to catch him in something he said so they could accuse him. You know, this is like when you show somebody what the Bible says. They want to chase a rabbit because they know they have no defense and what they believe isn't what it actually says. So they go somewhere else looking for somebody to, some way to accuse. That's what that is. Finally, in John 5, 16 through 18, in chapter 7 and verse 1, they persecuted and sought to kill him. Folks, I want you to get this this morning. It defies every shred, every fiber, every iota of common sense and logic that this perfectly pure and sinless Son of the living God, Emmanuel, God with us, this wonderful Counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting Father and Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6-7. This, this Word who became flesh and dwelt amongst us, John chapter 1, verse 14. It defies every shred and fiber of common sense and logic that that one should ever be referred to as these terms. That he should be referred to as a sinner? A blasphemer? A deceiver and an evildoer, and yet the scripture says he was. 
That he should be referred to as one who was crazy or insane or out of his mind? That's ridiculous. He was the wisdom of God made flesh. It makes no sense whatsoever. It defies all logic for people to accuse and ridicule and laugh at and mock and find fault with and complain about Him who is Christ the Lord. But yet we've seen Scripture. That's exactly what they did. Those are terms the Bible uses to show what they did to Him. It makes no sense for people to laugh Him to scorn. To say he has a demon and then publicly declare that they knew he had a demon. That, that makes no sense. That defies all logic. It defies the scripture. Makes no sense for people to be offended by him. To be indignant at him. So much so that they sought to kill him. And yet we have listed many scriptures to show that these things actually happened. But this is the question. So, all of that being said, why would they do that to him? I want you to think long and hard. It's got a lot to do with our topic. Why would they do that to him? We know that he never sinned, or said, or did, or acted, or preached, or taught in any way, anything that was contrary to God and God's purity and holiness. We know he never did. Everything Jesus ever said or did or preached or taught was perfectly and sinlessly and flawlessly pure and righteous and holy. Was it not? Yes, it was. So, what exactly is the problem? That was exactly the problem. That was exactly the problem. Jesus himself confirmed in John chapter 7 and verse 7 that the reason the world hated him was because he testified of it that its works were evil. Period. We see this in John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, as well as in John 15. Please open in your Bibles to John, the 15th chapter, and we will see this echoed yet again. That the reason the world hated him was because he testified or showed the world that what they were doing was evil. That's why they hated him, not because he'd done any evil. None of those charges had any merit. John 15 and verse 22. Going to spend a few minutes here. Jesus said, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Well, when Jesus came and spoke to them, what did he speak? He spoke the words of God. That's why they hated him. You can read all through the four Gospels. Like I did in preparation for this sermon. I, had, I read through all of them to get all these terms. I want you to read through them and, and you'll see that the reason that the world hated him was simply because he went by and taught the word of God. And they were jealous. 
They were envious. Even Pilate in Matthew 27 in verse 18, even the pagan Pilate understood that the reason the Jews delivered him up was out of envy. They couldn't refute the truth that he taught. They could not refute the truth that he taught. Yet neither were they willing to repent and accept it. And so they resorted to mocking and laughing and ridiculing and name calling because once they refused to examine and accept and obey the word that he taught, that's all they had left was laughing and ridicule and mocking. It's all they had left to retreat to. There was nowhere else to go. They were wrong. They knew it. They couldn't refute the truth. And so they had to resort to name calling. And the very things they so often falsely accused him of, they themselves were the ones that were guilty of. Look right here in this same passage. In, in John chapter 15, look at the verses that follow, verse 23 through 25. He says, He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Folks, this is one of the keys to this sermon miniseries right here in verse 25. Remember always... By their hatred and rejection of Jesus and the truth that he taught, they were actually fulfilling the very scriptures they denied. Don't ever miss that. If they stopped ridiculing Jesus, then they wouldn't have been fulfilling the scriptures. And it would show that the scriptures didn't know what they were talking about. But by their very actions, they were proving true the very scriptures they were in essence denying. Not only that, but there's another vital truth that we need to be acutely aware of here that we quite often lose sight of as well. Brethren, don't miss this next. It's in this very same section of Scripture that Jesus makes a promise to every single person who would truly accept and follow the truth he taught instead of rejecting it. What is that promise? Here it comes. Don't miss this. Whatever it was that they would say and do to him, they would say and do to all of those who truly sought to follow him. That's promise. That's part of the cornerstone of this sermon miniseries. Whatever it was that they would say and do to him, they would say and do to those who truly sought to follow him. Look what he says in John 15, 18 through 21. He says that. He says, If the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. In Matthew 10 and verse 25, he said, It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, and they did, right? We saw where they did. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Folks, 
everything we listed at the beginning of this sermon, Jesus said, if they're willing to do that to me, they're going to do it more to you. There it is, right there in the text. How much more will they call those of His household? And I would remind us who God's household is. God's household is that church which preaches, teaches, upholds, and practices only the truth of God's Word. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. And that church that always does what Jesus did, that simply upholds the truth no matter what, that accepts Jesus' authority and only teaches His truth, is going to get nailed and falsely accused for it always by those who refuse, reject, and are unwilling to accept and obey God's Word. We see that promise come true many times in Scripture. We see it with Stephen in Acts 7, as well as with the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13. Please turn to Acts chapter 13. We'll see the fulfillment of this promise in Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Verse 44, now of Matthew 13. And on the next Sabbath, almost a whole city came together to hear the word of God. They came together to hear the truth. You see that? But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with, here's our word, envy. It's the same old problem. It's the same envy and jealousy by those who cannot, those who cannot refute what is spoken. They cannot, in light of Scripture, defend their position. They cannot argue and make their point stand in light of the word of God that he's preaching. And so they're jealous and they resort to the next best thing because that's all they got left. They're filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They oppose the things spoken by Paul, which I would remind us, verse 44, is the word of God. And Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, we're turning to Gentiles. Folks, this text simply reinforces that vital truth that we need to be so aware of, but so often lose sight of. And that is this. When people cannot refute, but at the same time refuse to accept the plain, simple, black and white book, chapter, and verse teaching of the Word of God which we bring, then they're going to resort to accusations, most of the time false, ridicule, that is ridiculous, and name-calling much of the names which they call us, better defining themselves than us, every time. That's all they got left. That's it. They got nothing else left. And look at what the Apostle Paul was accused of being a part of and by whom in Acts 24. Look at Acts 24. Look what he was accused of being a part of and by whom. Acts chapter 24 beginning at verse 1 and running through verse 5 says this. 
Now after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders. Notice it's the high priest. Represent the scribes, Pharisees here. He came down with the elders and a certain orator, or lawyer, named Tertullus. And he gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation. Here comes the accusation. Saying, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. In other words, you're a great guy, listen to us. Verse 4. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. Now watch this. Here come the accusations. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader, watch this word, of the sect of the Nazarenes. Paul is accused of being a part of a sect. Now, the word sect in that passage right there and everywhere it's used in the book of Acts is very familiar to the is very similar to the modern day word cult. Very very closely related words. As we will see later tonight. And just like the word cult today those most likely to try to hurl it at and pin it on others, number one, don't really understand its true meaning, and number two, do not realize it is they who are actually far more guilty of the accusation of being a cult than those they try to hurl it at. For example, do you know what the word sect means? The word sect as used in this text, is the same word from which we get section. Think of a pie chart with the little sections. The word sect is the word from which we get section. It is the word from which we get division. The word sect is a word very closely related to the word sect, division, and denomination. Hello. Did you know that? The Lord's one original pre-denominational New Testament church as seen established and in existence in the scriptures is not a part, a portion, a section, or a division of anything including Judaism. See, this was their charge. Well, this sect is just part of Judaism. No, 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 no. The Lord's church was something entirely new. The Lord's church was this new thing where God's people would be called by a new name. It is the crowning touch that God has been about since before the creation of the world, Acts 3, verses 8 through 12. It's why Jesus died to establish this brand new thing, this kingdom, this church. The Lord's one original pre-denominational New Testament church as seen in the scriptures is not a sect, a section, a division, a portion, or a division of anything. That's why Paul would not let it stand. Look right here in this same chapter in verses 10 through 16. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know you have been for many years a judge of the nation, I do more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. 
And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. What's Paul saying? He's saying, look, these charges are false and ridiculous. And they were. Verse 13, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. Just like when people accuse us of being a cult. We have no idea what the word means and it probably fits them better than us. They cannot prove the things they say. But, verse 14, this I confess to you. Now, now watch the wording. That according to the way which they call a sect... Paul understands that the church is not a sect. He doesn't say, according to the way which is a sect. He says, according to the way which they call a sect. They have no idea what they're talking about, because we're not a section of anything. Which they call a sect. Yeah, according to that way. So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. Folks, this needs to be our slogan verse. When anybody accuses us ever of being a cult, these need to be our slogan verses. Notice what Paul says. He says, the way they call a sect, I believe, the way they call one, even though it isn't one, believing all things which are written. Do you believe all things that are written in the Bible? If you believe all things which are written in the Bible and you're willing to accept those things, then your religion is the same as Paul's. Others are going to call it a sect. Yep, they are. They did then. They've done it for the last 1950 years. Okay. They have no idea what they're talking about because they can't even define the word. Look what he goes on to say. I have hope in God, which they also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I strive always... I'm sorry, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. Do we try to do that, verse 16? Do we have the religion of Paul? Are we trying the best we can to live for God and not offend people? Absolutely. Guess what? I am blessed this morning to be able to say that according to the way those people in that chapter called a sect, according to the way they called a sect, I too am glad to worship God. Amen is right. Similarly, one of the dictionary definitions of the word cult that we will examine later tonight, it contains a list of synonyms for the word cult. A synonym, as you know, is a word that's very, very similar to the word cult. Again, that dictionary definition in its synonyms for cult includes sect, denomination, and faction. You know why? Because a cult or a sect or a division or a denomination is a section or division off the original. Is a denomination something that broke off, that broke off, that broke off, that broke off the original? They're the section, not us. They're the division. They're the cult. It is the denominations of the world which divided off from the original church of Christ as seen in the scriptures which we strive to be, which are far more synonymous with the word cult as the dictionary defines it. I want us to please also notice the hypocrisy. In the Apostle Paul's day in chapter 24 of Acts, it was these representatives of the scribes and the Pharisees who falsely hurled the accusation of, at Paul that he was part of a sect as a member of the Lord's one New Testament pre-denominational church. They hurled that charge at him. But you know what? Here's, here's the irony. Guess what? In the scriptures, it is both the scribes and the Pharisees that are sects. And the Bible calls them that. Let me give you the references. 
The scribes and the Pharisees were sects or sections or divisions of Judaism. <laughs> and yet it's them. <laughs> really? Wow. Here's your references. Acts 5.17, Acts 15.5, and Acts 26.5 prove it is the scribes and the Pharisees the representatives of which called him a member of a sect that were actually of a sect themselves. Oh, the irony. But you know what? It's the same way today when denominational folks accuse us as members of the Lord's one church we see in Scripture of being a cult. Because the word cult has more to do with denominations than the one original they broke off from and sectioned themselves off from. It's laughable when you actually know what it means. Apparently... Some people not only don't know their Bibles, but they don't know their dictionaries very well either. However, we are out of time. I hope you are here tonight as we get into the real meat of this little sermon mini-series entitled, once again, Thank You So Much for Calling Us a Cult and Proving Christ Right. This morning, if you'd become a part of the Lord's original church, then you've got to do it the way the Apostle Peter originally preached it. You've got to be able to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. If you gladly receive his word as it was preached in Acts chapter 2 from verse 14 all the way through to that invitation where those who gladly received his word were baptized and about 3,000 souls were added that day in verse 41, we would encourage you to come to the front as we stand and sing and become a part of the Lord's church.